We'll be reading from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials said to them, sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. 
Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Take heed, therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this great summation of, of all of Scripture consummating in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you be with Tom as he speaks these words. May your spirit speak to our hearts for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we uh, pick up Luke's narrative now in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 13, oh, I need to mention, I, you saw that I truncated the passage. The top of it said we were going to go to verse 52, but we only went to verse 43. That was by intention on my part, uh, had a little change late in the week. As we come into this section of, of Acts 13, we get to another of the extensive uh, gospel presentations, uh, evangelistic sermons that are found in the book of Acts. We've already seen uh, similar messages presented in Acts chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 10. Now, instead of Peter, it's Paul that's doing the speaking. Um, now, you might think that since three of the four evangelistic sermons that I just mentioned are directed and have been directed toward crowds that were almost exclusively Jewish, that they might not be all that helpful to you or to me as we find ourselves talking to people who know little or nothing about the Old Testament. But I got to tell you, Paul comes back to this, these same essential elements of the gospel even much later when he's writing letters to churches that are overwhelmingly Gentile. These Old Testament connections are not just for Jews. They are part and parcel. They are foundational to the gospel itself. Um, and we've had a lot to say about that already. And there will be more because it just, this just keeps coming up. Uh, our passage this morning is exceedingly valuable for the church in every age to equip us to proclaim Christ to all kinds of people. And for anyone here today who, who isn't clear on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about, this passage proclaims what you must know and believe in order to be saved forever. I'm going to look at a map for a second. And let me, there we go. We've seen the, the first part of Paul's first missionary journey started in Antioch. They started here in, in Antioch. I'll just move the cursor so you can see it. And then they moved, they, they sailed initially from Antioch down here to, to the island of Cyprus. 
And they landed on the eastern end of Cyprus, and they traveled all the way across, preaching at all the synagogues, and they, they met with the consul, the proconsul, the governor of the island at Paphos, which was the most important port city on Cyprus. And they had a, a very interesting interaction with uh, a magician named Bar-Jesus, as we saw last time. Now they've sailed north, and they've come to the southern coast of Asia Minor, to a little town called Perga, and that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, when they get to Perga, John Mark, who was one of, the, one of the co-workers that had accompanied them, leaves them. It says, he left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. And the reason for John Mark's exit from this missionary journey is never explained here or elsewhere. But in Acts 15, we find that John Mark's departure from, uh, at this point left the Apostle Paul with a very negative impression of John Mark's trustworthiness as a co-worker. But thankfully for all of us, our God is a God of redemption and restoration and renewal. Um, John Mark would later be restored to fellowship with Paul, and he would be restored to great and enduring usefulness on Christ's behalf. This is the man who wrote the second gospel in the New Testament, the gospel of Mark. Now from Perga, Paul and Barnabas and his co-workers, and by the way, now, now you see that every time the two of them are mentioned together, it's Paul and Barnabas instead of Barnabas and Paul in this chapter. Paul and Barnabas and their co-workers went north to Antioch of Syria. Now you'll notice there's an Antioch over here and there's an Antioch over here. Their home base of Antioch is Antioch of Syria. This one that they've just come to is Antioch of Pisidia. That's the name of the region. Uh, this is Antioch of Pisidia. Here in chapter 13, this is the first time we get to see Paul's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in any detail. And this is the gospel that Paul got directly from the resurrected Jesus. Chapter 9 told us that right after being saved, Paul was, quote, confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Christ. Now, we find very similar summary statements uh, about Paul's gospel in other places in Acts, like at the beginning of chapter 17. The clear focus of Paul's gospel presentation over and over is that Jesus of Nazareth, whom the Jews crucified by the hands of godless Romans, is the long-promised Christ of whom all of the prophets spoke. Ever since Moses, Jesus is that long-promised Messiah, that Christ. In other words, Christ and Messiah are exactly equal. Messiah is the Hebrew version of the word. Christ is the, is the New Testament or Greek version of the word. In both cases, it means anointed one. Now, we get to see that declaration, Jesus is the Christ, amplified and explained. As we talked about when we looked at Peter's evangelistic sermons in Acts 2 and 3, that declaration, Jesus is the Christ, is, it is all about going back to the Old Testament witness of the Father to the Son through the prophets. It means that the, the, the phrase, he is the Christ, means that he is 
the promised descendant of King David. That all started in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God made a covenant with David that he would have a descendant who would rule on his throne in Jerusalem, not just over Israel, but over all of the nations of the earth, and that his dominion, his reign would be just and righteous, and it would last forever. It would last forever. There are passages like Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9 that even Orthodox Jews today believe are talking about that promise from 2 Samuel 9, that promise to King David. They're, they're Jews today still looking for the Messiah, the Christ, who's supposed to come as a descendant of David. The Jews understood very well that according to their own prophets, this Christ would be the one who would come and fulfilled these promises that the, that the prophets talked about all the time, and that he would rule in Jerusalem as a seat of power. He would reign forever. So when Peter and Paul declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Jews knew what they meant. But only some of them accepted all that was meant by that declaration, Jesus is the Christ. And that's, we're going to see that a whole lot in this passage all of this talk about the long-promised Messiah or Christ might sound like a broken record now that we've been through the sermons and Peter's sermons in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 10. This keeps coming up over and over. But God uses repetition as theological glue. God uses repetition in his word to sear into our minds and through our minds into our hearts the, the most the most foundational and critical truths that he has revealed to us. And so you can expect to see those truths many, many times in Scripture, and that's the case here. We who belong to Christ are fine with that repetition, right? We love to hear the gospel. No one who belongs to Christ can ever hear these magnificent truths too many times. The first pastor at the first Bible church that I went to after I got saved said, the gospel is both the milk and the meat of the word. And I, I've always believed that to be true. The gospel is, is always balm to our souls and joy to our hearts every time we hear it. And we're going to hear it today. I, I love it every time I get a chance to, to look at a passage that just puts the gospel right out on the table. And that's what we're doing today. One of the things I find most illuminating and important about Paul's gospel proclamation here in chapter 13 is how beautifully it matches up with Peter's proclamation of the gospel in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and in Acts 10. That, see, that is explicitly not because Paul learned his gospel from Peter. We know that's not the case because in Galatians chapter 1, Paul makes it exceedingly clear that he didn't get his gospel from any man. He got his gospel, any mortal man, he got his gospel from the resurrected Jesus. And yet we find that Paul's gospel is Peter's gospel. That's cool. Verse 14 of the present chapter tells us that on the first Sabbath, after Paul and his co-workers reached the city of Pisidian Antioch, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. The next verse says, and after the, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. They invited Paul and Barnabas to 
stand up and have something to say. Now, I want to point out this was the standard mode of operation for every synagogue of that era every week of the year on every, every Sabbath day. First, a scheduled reading from the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament as we know it, followed by a reading from the prophetic and poetic books of the Bible. And then after the readings, the scheduled readings, there was time for comments and discussion among the men regarding what had just been read from God's Word. Does that sound familiar? And by the way, those comments were not limited to just one appointed rabbi or a designated group of men. Any adult Jewish male attending any synagogue worship was allowed to speak after the readings. And visiting men were typically invited to speak as a means of welcoming and honoring them as fellow Jews who had come into this other Jewish community. It certainly should not go unsaid here that Paul's instruction to the church in 1 Corinthians 14 about how to do corporate worship prescribes an open worship format that sounds very much like this pattern of worship that was observed in the Jewish synagogues in New Testament times. To Jews of Paul's day, what we do here on Sunday mornings would look very, very familiar, except for the Lord's table, right? Just as with Peter's evangelistic sermon on the day of Pentecost, Paul addresses his message here to the men of Israel, the Jews, and to those who fear God. Now, the phrase, those who fear God, is referring to Gentile converts to Judaism, Gentiles who are worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I want to look in some detail at the parts to Paul's gospel proclamation that we find in this passage, in, uh, in it basically that spans from verse 16 through uh, about verse 40, verse 39. This is the longest evangelistic sermon of Paul in the New Testament. So it gives us a very valuable in-depth look at what he preached when he went from city to city and from synagogue to synagogue. He always went to the synagogue before he went out into the public and preached to the most, in these mostly Gentile cities. He always went to the Jews first. Uh, all right, let's start at the top. In, uh, in verses 16 to 21, uh, 16 to 23, we see Paul declare that the, the promised son of David is the promised savior. And I'll, I'll we'll see as this develops. He means the promised savior of sinners. And that's a problem from the Jewish perspective. The first thing that Paul does in verses 16 to 21 is he he begins with an amazingly concise review of 450 years of Israel's history. From their bondage in Egypt to their exodus from Egypt to their 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and to their conquest of the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, after just doing a a whiplash run through all of that history, he mentions in one verse 
that when the Israelites demanded a king, God gave them Saul as their first earthly king. That's all he says about Saul. Then Paul slows the timeline down very, very sharply. And when that happens, when he now starts to talk about uh, in much finer detail and moving much slower through history, that's when we need to really be paying attention. His super fast review of Israel's history up to this point was preamble to his gospel, not substance. Now it comes to the substance. Verse 23 is ground zero for the explosive declaration that Paul presents to this assembly of Jews and Yahweh worshipers. I'm reading verses 22 and 23. And after he, God, had removed him, Saul, as king, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now here's verse 23. Listen. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. That's a loaded verse. From the descendant of David, according to promise, in other words, this is not new information, God has brought to Israel a Savior, and that Savior's name is now known. That long-promised Savior is Jesus of Nazareth. The word that leaps from this verse even now is the word Savior. The word the Jews would have expected in, in place of that word in this sentence is the word King. They would have been okay with the definition of the word Savior that meant that the king from the line of David would deliver them from being under the thumb of Roman rule and would exalt them to their rightful place as the leading nation among all nations. They would have been okay with that version of Savior. And that's what they were convinced that the, the long-promised Messiah was supposed to accomplish when he came, right? But as Paul proceeds with this sermon, it becomes very, very clear that that's not at all what he means by the word Savior. Paul is saying that God's Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of a king from the offspring of David who would be the savior of Israel because of their, re their rebellion against God, because they were sinners alienated from God. Now, this should not have been any kind of surprise to the Jews of Paul's day. It was not new information by any stretch. Israel desperately needed to be saved from the well-deserved judgment of God because of their continual rebellion against him. And guys, that had not been just a recurring theme in the Old Testament. It had been a constant theme in the Old Testament. It is stunning how much of the narrative in the Old Testament is indictment against Israel and Judah. Over and over and over. God's not patting these guys on the back. He is indicting them for their constant obstinance, stubbornness of heart, rebellion against him, their refusal to listen to his prophets. In effect, he says, I get my prophets up real early in the morning and I send them out to talk to you and you pay them no attention. He says these things over and over. And many, many passages 
written by those same prophets, declared that their salvation from God's fierce judgment that they deserved, their restoration and reconciliation to God and the renewal of their hearts would come through the same long-promised Messiah King from the line of David who would deliver them from their enemies and from tyrannical earthly rulers. Passages like Isaiah 25, Jeremiah 31 that was read in the worship this morning, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, I could go on and on. God has been talking to mankind about sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption ever since he started talking to men. All right. The first part of Paul's gospel is that the promised son of David is the promised savior. The second is that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. In verses 24 to 25, Paul moves from the Old Testament witness to the first New Testament witness, which began with the witness of John the Baptist. Paul ties John's baptism of repentance that was preached to all the people of Israel to this long-promised Savior. John's call for repentance was never, it was never about men and women simply ceasing to do sinful things. It was a call to sinners to stop in their tracks, to humble themselves before God, acknowledging that they are rebels against God in need of a Savior, and to look expectantly and wait for the coming of the Savior that the prophets had been talking about for many, many generations. John was the guy who got to announce the coming of this Messiah that the prophets had been talking about so long. Acts 19 verse 4 bears out this understanding of, of John's baptism of repentance very well. It says, Paul said, Acts 19.4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. The third part of Paul's gospel is that the Jews' rejection and crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled what the prophets had foretold. In verses 26 to 29 here in Acts 13, Paul says that the Jews ignored the prophetic word about this salvation, and in doing so, because of their rejection of Christ, they fulfilled that very prophetic word. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> God knew they, were gonna re they would reject Christ, and their rejection was necessary in order for, for the salvation promised to them to, to actually happen and promised to us. The very prophecies that they regularly read in their own synagogues year after year, they fulfilled by putting Jesus to death on a cross. In verse 29, Paul says, and when they had carried out all that was written concerning Jesus, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. Again, it's indispensable to the gospel message that Jesus died physically, bodily, and that he was buried. That had to happen, just as the prophets said that it must. 
Now we could spend, uh, we did a series a while back on Christ in the Old Testament, and that, if you, if you go on the website and check out that series, you'll, you'll see the act, all of these passages that spoke of these things in the Old Testament. The next part of this, uh, of this gospel message is that the resurrection of Jesus also fulfilled. So the, resurrection, the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled what the prophets foretold, and so did the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 30 through 37... Uh, 30 says, but God raised him from the dead. So he, was, he died, he was buried in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And of course, that, that, those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus is where this book of Acts started in chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 15 passage in which Paul says, you want to know what the gospel is? This is it. He says, the gospel that, that we preach to you, by which you were saved, here it is. In that passage, Paul declares that the resurrection is the acid test of our faith. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, the gospel that we preach is false. And we have become advocates of falsehood. Trusting in a Savior who isn't real. Paul minces no words. He's ready to put, he's ready to, to put Christianity on the chopping block and to, and to identify the very thing that would undo it. But then he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He knew that that happened because he met the resurrected Jesus. We know, beloved, that the gospel we proclaim is perfectly true precisely because, as Paul says here in Acts 13.30, God raised him from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus appeared, Paul says, to the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. They could ask these people who were talking about having seen the resurrected Christ, they could try to pick apart their witness. They were around. I've said this before. I don't have much time, but I want to mention again. Think about this. When Jesus was crucified and raised, it was the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There were Jews from all over the Roman Empire and Jerusalem. And now they've all gone back home. And so when you go to Pisidian Antioch, there are Jews there that were there. They were there in Jerusalem when these things happened. All right. Those who had seen Jesus during the 40 days of his post-resurrection appearances didn't merely think that the gospel they preached on his behalf was the truth. They knew with rock-solid certainty that it was true because they had seen him. Many people die for things they believe. Only idiots die for what they know is false. Many people went to their deaths proclaiming that they had seen the resurrected Christ or their mother or their father or their brother had seen the resurrected Christ and they would not relent. And that's why people who had nothing to gain in this life persisted in their witness to Christ until it shook the Roman Empire and spread like wildfire throughout all of civilized mankind. Having presented the historical reality of the atoning death and glorious resurrection of Jesus, attested by many who had seen firsthand those events, 
Paul now camps out on an exceedingly important facet of the gospel message that we tend to omit more often than we include. He's already made this point, but now in verses 32 to 37, he lingers on it. He expands on it as he looks back at the prophetic witness to drive it home. What is that point? It is that just as the atoning death of Jesus had been promised through the prophets, so had the resurrection of Jesus. The Old Testament passage on which Paul lingers here is the same one that Peter lingered on in Acts chapter 2. That passage is from Psalm 16. Now he briefly moves through two other prophetic declarations. He cites Psalm 2 verse 7 in which God the Father proclaimed of his anointed conquering king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now I've always understood that to be coronation language, the, the words of the king as he hands over his throne to his beloved son. It's not the language of, of the birthday, it's the language of the coronation day. And so it is, that's an accurate understanding. But the life of Jesus didn't look very kingly until the day his father raised him from the dead. Paul presents this patriarchal declaration of God the Father to God the Son as prophetic promise of Christ's resurrection that has now become historical reality. The second prophetic reference here to the resurrection of Messiah is from Isaiah 55, verse 3. Paul says, As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no more to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now that promise in Isaiah 55 is made to anyone who comes to the water that God gives freely and, and drinks. But the way we have that promise is in Christ. And the holy and sure blessings of David included God's promise that a descendant of David would reign forever. That couldn't happen to Jesus unless he was raised from the dead. So he sees this as a resurrection promise. But the centerpiece of Paul's, Paul's assertion that the resurrection was promised through the Old Testament prophets is the same passage to which Peter went. Psalm 16 and especially verse 10. When the Messiah declares, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The Holy One from the line of David would die, just as the prophets declared, but his body would not decay in the grave. Both Peter and Paul point out that, that even though David wrote that psalm, he couldn't have been talking about himself because he's still in his grave. And, and Peter actually says David knew he was speaking prophetically. He knew he wasn't talking about himself. He knew he was talking about Messiah. He was, Jesus, the, the Christ, would be raised victorious from the grave to reign as Savior and King forever. All right, those are the uh, one, two, three, four, five parts of the gospel, or four parts of the gospel, and now's the fifth. The salvation that Jesus accomplished brings about forgiveness of sin and freedom from the curse of the law. Right here in verses 38 and 39 of Acts 13 is where the true gospel leaves every kind of denier of the truth about their own wretched hearts unwilling to accept the truth about Jesus. The Jews that Paul was addressing believed that they were, or could at least be, keepers of the law of Moses, 
at a level that would guarantee their acceptability to God. They believed that if they worked hard enough at observing all of the laws and ordinance, ordinances in the, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Torah, that God commanded them, uh, then God must surely let them into his kingdom. But the inescapable truth is that they were slaves of sin just like the Gentiles, alienated from God and completely unable to do anything about it. See, the law was not given so that sinners would become good enough for God. The law was given so that sinners would know they aren't good enough for God. It was a tutor, Paul says in Galatians, to lead us to Christ. The perfect standard of God's law. He's, God is serious about his law. It means what it says. It presents his character, his way, his nature. And it says, you be like that. Leviticus 19.2, be holy for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. So the question we have is, what's the standard? Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. James said in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Why? Because God doesn't grade on the curve. And God himself is the standard of holiness and righteousness that God requires of his image bearers. That levels the playing field, guys. We are all lost and dead in our sin, forever alienated from God unless God solves the problem. And that's what Jesus did. See, if God could allow less than perfectly holy people into his kingdom and presence, that would make him less than perfectly holy. The multitude of man-contrived religions that say that we can make ourselves good enough for a holy God, they're just lies. And they all diminish God. Paul says to his Jewish audience here in Acts 13, 38 and 39, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. To a Jew, those are fighting words. You're telling me that the law of Moses is not enough? Guys, the law of Moses guarantees our condemnation. The law can't set anyone free from slavery to sin. In fact, the law is like a wet paint sign. You can walk by that wall a thousand times, but as soon as someone puts that sign on the wall, what do you do? That's what the law does to our sin. It shows us the standard, and we, can't, we just can't stand not violating it. The purpose of the law was to be a tutor to bring sinners to Jesus. In verses 40 and 41, now that's, that's the, those are the parts to Paul's gospel, and it's a, magnificent, uh, it's a magnificent set of propositions that you and I need to know. We need to know this stuff. This is, if we want to be Christ's ambassadors on earth, we need to know this stuff. Now, verses 40 and 41 show us that the gospel comes with a warning Paul follows this promise of forgiveness of sin and freedom from the curse of the law with a warning. He says, take heed, therefore, 
so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your day, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. The force of this warning is, do not be among those who will not hear the gospel of grace, even if it is spelled out for them as clearly as I just spelled it out for you. That's what Paul is saying. And that's what I say to you if you're here today and you have not, you have not trusted with childlike faith in the only one who will ever save you from the penalty that you deserve, and that's Jesus Christ. Do not be among those who will not hear the gospel, even if it is declared to you as clearly as you have just seen it declared. Most of humanity simply will not be willing to accept the gospel. Most will mock and scoff when they hear the gospel. Paul's warning is just as ours must be. Do not be the one who won't hear the truth. The truth about your own sin and God's perfect holiness. The truth about your desperate need for the forgiveness and salvation that is found only in Jesus. The last point that I want to address is verses 42 and 43. The gospel not only comes with a warning, it comes with a long-term assignment for those who embrace it. When the meeting at the synagogue that, that Sabbath was done, many of those who heard the gospel so clearly proclaimed actually begged Paul to come back and tell them more about these things on the next Sabbath. I believe many were saved that day, as we'd seen with the evangelistic presentations of Peter. Verse, verse 43 says, Many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. In Galatians 5, Paul addresses believers who were being shamed by unrepentant Jews into thinking that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Gentiles had to be circumcised. They had to become Jews in order to be saved. See, they had to mix. They were being told they had to mix law and grace to be real children of God, real Christians. Paul says to those Christians who were being thus confused and tempted, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying, don't go back to law. Cling to grace. Hold fast to grace. In Galatians 2.21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Guys, if some mixture of God's gift and your performance is necessary for you to be right with God, you're done. Because God doesn't grade on the curve. There's no mixture. Paul and Barnabas knew exceedingly well that men and women who had come out of the works-based righteousness of corrupted Judaism and into the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ, we're going to face a constant temptation to turn back. 
They would be persecuted by people from the ranks of their own families and their most cherished lifelong friends. They'd be told over and over again that all this talk of freedom from the law was an abominable heresy and that they must walk away from this cult of lawless Christianity lest they incur the terrible wrath of God. See, it has always been religious people who persecute true believers most fiercely. Not wolves that look like wolves, but wolves that look like sheep. In a body of believers like ours, where only a few of us grew up in a Jewish context, it would be easy for us to dismiss these last verses as irrelevant, but they are anything but. We are commanded to continue in grace. The temptation to move back to law-keeping takes all kinds of different forms, certainly not just Judaism. It is rampant in many churches that call themselves Christian. At the very heart of a worthy walk as redeemed children of God is to hold fast with an unwavering and uncompromising grip to the grace of God and Jesus Christ. If we depart from grace, the first thing that withers in our lives is gratitude. 1 Samuel 12, 24 says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Amen. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude by which we may offer an acceptable service to God with reverence and awe. Acceptable service comes from gratitude. Colossians 2 says that, the, that we walk as we started, rooted and grounded in faith, firmly established in, in Christ, and overflowing with gratitude. That's the Christian life. Efforts to please God, I'm almost done here, efforts to please God by the works of our hands are filthy, filthy rags in, in the eyes of God. What makes our efforts pleasing is when they proceed from hearts filled with thankfulness to him for what we did not and never could deserve. We live for God, we love and serve people on his behalf, not to get something from God, but because he gave us what we could never earn. There's a big difference in those two motivations, a really, really big difference. Only a life overflowing with gratitude to the one who gave his life to save wretched and unworthy sinners like you and me will produce a lifestyle that displays Christ and delights God. The message preached by Peter and Paul and every faithful witness of Christ through the ages is a message of amazing grace. To the world and to all who hold to a man-centered version of righteousness, the fact that you and I hold relentlessly to the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ alone will be seen as scandalous. It will be seen as intolerable and even insane. Religious people of countless man-centered and man-contrived faiths will despise us for assigning no credit to man at all. Because we will not declare our obedience to be the basis of our merit in the eyes of God, they will accuse us of lawlessness. 
but real obedience, the real practical holiness that we talked about in our worship this morning, you know where that comes from? It comes from knowing whose you are and being overwhelmed with gratitude for that gift. Atheists and humanists will mock us as spiritual cripples unwilling to recognize the inherent good and unlimited potential of mankind that doesn't exist. But our Redeemer and King commands us in His Word to continue in grace, to hold fast to grace, knowing that it is only, it is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ that qualifies us to dwell with our perfectly holy God. And we have that as a gift and as a gift only. Father, thank you for uh, this magnificent gospel presentation through the Apostle Paul. Sear it into our hearts. Father, make it to dwell richly in our hearts so that we may, we may joyfully share these beautiful truths with everyone that you set in our paths and many will be saved. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.